Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If you listen to the show a lot, you may have divined that one of the sacred moments of my day is when I'm picking out music for these shows. Uh, I mean, I just really have a lot of fun doing it, and it's really important to me. Today's show is about humanism, and it's really hard to do it for humanism because, well, for a lot of reasons that I think will become evident, um, humanism is a little bit quicksilvery. Uh, it, it's a little hard to nail it down and say, well, so this would be a perfect um, singing <laughs> expression of humanism. Uh, there aren't a lot of humanist hymns for obvious reasons. Um, but anyway, I did think Nina Simone is getting at something there uh, that we're going to be talking about today. And one of the people we're going to be talking to is Sarah Bakewell, the author of Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope, among other books. You may have her Montaigne book somewhere in your bookshelves. We certainly do. Uh, and so welcome to our show, Sarah Bakewell. Quite an honor to have you on. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here. So humanism often is defined almost more in terms of things that it is not or things that it rejects, things like blind adherence to dogma or ritual or the divine right of kings, theocracies. Getting that affirmative description as you try to do at the beginning of this book is tricky and kind of varies a bit from humanist to humanist, correct? Yeah, except that actually I I don't think, I think humanists do strenuously try not to define themselves in mm -hmm. terms of negatives. It's a, it's a contrast really with, say, atheism, which even in the word itself is a, meaning non-theistic, you know, humanism tries to be a positive activity, vision, way of living, and so on. Where there definitely is a big challenge is in narrowing it down to one very sort of specific definition because there's so many ways of being a humanist. Um, I tried in the book, I start actually with a story which I took from a, a comic novel um, by David Nobbs. Um, and I just kind of stole it because it seemed to express that so well. He has this group of students at a high school deciding to set up a humanist society. And at the first meeting, they say, well, we better start by defining what humanism is. And so, you know, one of them pipes up saying it's, um, it's sort of non-religious uh, means of life and non not believing in the supernatural. Another one says, but no, that's not right. It's the Renaissance's attempt to escape from medieval ideas. And another one says, um, no, it's about being kind and generous and uh, looking after 
sick animals and old people and things um to which another person says oh we're just wasting time here and uh that that person says are you calling looking after old people and sick animals a waste <laughs> of time <laughs> to which you know and then it all falls apart in chaos but my um uh, approach is to take exactly that story and all that diversity of definitions and treat it as a positive thing so this is a really many faceted idea uh, the two big biggest strands i think are the the one that the humanist movement proposes which is a moral and philosophical idea of of living a meaningful life without um using institutional religion as as the main guide to that um but there's also the kind of humanist whose work is at the heart of the word humanities the whole idea of the human studies so those are two very different meanings but they share actually a lot of common ground well your book takes us through history and i, I think that's uh we'll be talking about the humanities i think in the, the second segment a bit uh but i think that's a great way to do this uh and i woke up this morning and i said to my partner I think I'm rethinking my attitudes towards Cicero, who I've hated since the ninth grade. Um, but so Cicero, in a way, introduces this idea of humanitas, and he does it, as I understand it anyway, in the context of kind of reviving Hellenistic thought in Roman society, which is interesting because there is no Greek equivalent, I don't think, for humanitas. Uh, but, but what he's saying is there are these ideas, uh, and they are ideas that are arri arrived at through a method of questioning and inquiry, uh, which is very different from obeying ritual or sacrificing oxes every other day for whatever reason. Um, let's do this. Let's set up a model here for exactly what you were just talking about, Sarah, right? So in a way, uh, one of the things that, that humanism do, does periodically is revive something that's dormant or overlooked by the society that it's found in. And Cicero is maybe one of the people to really get that idea rolling. Yeah. I mean, there are Greek equivalents. There's definitely, Cicero was very interested in how to be a good citizen, how to be um, a good human being in, in society. So there's a, a great emphasis on um, working with other people and also education so that we're really formed as human beings by our teachers, parents, those around us in general. Um, and that continues as we go on through life. And it's very much bound up with being a part of, of a political society as well, as far as his concern. And that idea it, it doesn't exactly disappear, but there's this moment in the 14th century where Petrarch, in, in particular Francesco Petrarca, decides to really revive that, hoping to, to kind of kickstart his own society <laughs> into um, reviving those ideals, those ways of being a sort of fully developed human being, a fully committed human being. I mean, it's not an irreligious thing. It's not necessarily in opposition to religion in any way, um, certainly not for Petrarch, but it's just that the focus of it is much more on human society and human um, political existence and human development, all of those things. And that remains the case for a lot of humanists, whatever they think about religion, often just the attention is really on that human world that we all live in, the world of culture, um, relationships with each other, ethics, morality, um, and all of these have this very long tradition, this very long history behind them. Yeah, you know, as a, one of the things that you, you prompted me to think about in, in connection with this and thinking about humanism, if I could go back to my new best friend Cicero, um, is I think he's introducing this idea that I think is 
pretty consistent throughout humanism. And that idea is that a lot of people should know a lot of things. Um, and, and he, in many respects, starts a process of education that, you know, 350, 400 years later, in far reaches uh, of the Roman Empire, someone like Augustine of Hippo or, or the man who will become St. Jerome, they're still participating and they're still coming into knowledge uh, with, with a remnant of kind of Ciceronian education. That idea that a lot of people should know a lot of things, should have access to a lot of knowledge. I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like that is a through line for humanism going forward to Petrarch and well beyond. It is. I mean, it's one of the criticisms that's um, leveled at, at some of that human his, humanist uh, tradition is that there were phases where unthinkingly they were really talking about a a relatively small group of people, a kind of elite, and certainly it would tend to be men, males, you know, young, like boys went to school, not girls usually. And of course, we're talking about, you know, white European culture um, being the, you know, exclusive in a way, dominant. And then there's a movement later on with the humanist tradition of becoming much more interested in exactly what you're talking about with more, you know, everybody should know lots of things, that it should be for everyone that this is a tradition that is um, open to all of humanity. So there's been that movement through humanist history, just as there has, has through Western European history in general. Yeah, and so, uh, so and I, I think no. Now let's go to the 14th century and and visit Petrarch and and some of his confreres. And you suddenly, I think, you also have a real, real, in, a great interest in books because obviously that's where information yeah. is. That's where knowledge is preserved. So not incidentally, but that interest in books also is accompanied by handwriting because you know you can't publish a book there's no copy machine uh, there's no control C um, if you if you find something that's interesting to you if you're a Petrarch you've got to stop what you're doing I think doesn't he even like stop a vacation one time he's on holiday and he says hey there's this is great yeah. <laughs> tell there's that a great story moment where yeah. he is because whenever he traveled anywhere, um, he'd immediately go to any monastery in the area or any kind of library, anywhere where he might find manuscripts and, um, you know, go through them. But if he found something interesting, if he couldn't actually take it away with him, he would just stop and copy it out in full. And there's this one thing in particular when he was still quite young and he was traveling in the low countries um, with a group of friends and he made them all wait while he stopped and copied out actually an oration of Cicero's. And it was uh, the one where Cicero talks about the benefits of the human studies, so humanities. Um, but he loved, you know, he loved books. He loved manuscripts. They were, of course, no printing, obviously, as yet. So there was this laborious business of copying, but also a precarious business of sharing it with other people. So if you wanted to send a copy of your precious manuscript to a friend to read it would have to go out on these dangerous roads who knows what might happen to it then it would be sent back um copying was the thing that was keeping it going but it had to be done in such a laborious way and he was interested in he just loved the books for themselves that's very clear um kind of a cult of finding manuscripts in these supposedly you know very forgotten repositories but also he loved what they could do for people. So he loved the way that the, the wisdom that would be contained in them. And he loved the networks of friendships that he was building up through all this sharing of, of knowledge and sharing of manuscripts. 
So it was a really vibrant network of people involved. So uh, I, I think humanism, particularly you know, in the time that we're talking about, but maybe all the way through, has an odd um, dualistic um, attitude towards canonical things, things that are settled, things that have been accepted. There's a way in which humanists really want to ask a lot of questions about that. How settled is that really? Why, why do you think that's true? What's the proof that it's true? But there's also a kind of reverence for the canon, and maybe we can mm-hmm. come back to that too. But, but in terms of that first somewhat, you know, there, there's still bumper stickers all over America that say question authority. That's something that they do. You might want to talk about uh, your friend Avala and the uh, the donation of Constantine. It's a good humanist story. It is, yes. And it, it, it makes a very good contrast to that tendency to be too reverent, which some of them had. I mean, you were talking about Cicero, and that was a classic case of it. There were some of them by the 14th, by the 15th century who were so um, excessively reverent to Cicero and his Latin style that they thought that any word that couldn't be found in Cicero basically wasn't good Latin and they would never use it. So they tried to use every single word that appeared in their own writings had to be found in Cicero, you know, ridiculous. And, and this Lorenzo Valla, who's one of my favourite figures in the story, took a very different view saying, you know, it's... Well, there's plenty of other sources. There's more fish in the sea besides Cicero, for one thing. But also he um, was very daring in the use of his skills of humanities, we would say, the kind of philology, um, which is the dedication to study of language and literature. Um, He used it to, most famously in this one case um, in 1440, to challenge the... um, legitimacy of a document called the Donation of Constantine, which supposedly recorded the Emperor Constantine having made in the 400s, having made a gift to the church of the complete dominion over all the territory of Western Europe, basically. Um, Now, in fact, it was a later forgery in the 8th century, and Valor pointed this out uh, mainly by using this analysis of the language. So he pointed out certain terms that um, appeared in the text weren't of the right period of Latin. They were only used in a later time. So it's this historical thinking, um, inquiry, you know, this this daring business of inquiring into historical veracity and what really might have happened rather than what the enormous authority of the church said had happened. Um, he um, also questioned some of what his fellow scholars were doing uh, in their works on classical literature too. And and he sort of dared to question, were some of these classical authors actually even uh, that reliable themselves? Because by then there was this uh, other group that, that said you could do no wrong, basically, if you were one of those classical authors. So that spirit of inquiry comes across very strongly in him. He was probably a pretty difficult character to deal with. I think his he was quite uh, <laughs> bumptious. Yes. And much as I admire him, I'm not sure that I'd actually like to have him round for dinner. You know, well, you, don't, you don't want him to review one of your trouble. yeah. You don't want him to review one of your books, definitely. Um, no, and, 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 no but, I think yeah, it would end in trouble. But to yeah. seize on that point, because I think it's a point that manifests even here uh, in, in this century. Um, I, I ran into this on social media the other day, where I was dealing with a guy who one of these people who doesn't think vaccines work and doesn't think COVID is real and doesn't think and just embraced all these kind of crazy ideas. And at one point, he said to me, "You're." 
just like some 17th, church, 17th century church elder talking to Galileo. And I said, you know, people get that idea. Val is a good example. Galileo is the one that everybody knows. They think it's about sticking it to the man, <laughs> about questioning mm-hmm. authority. That, and that's how you become right. But in fact, Galileo or Val would say, no, you become right by being right. <laughs> that's how you become and right. By having evidence. You know, yes. I think that's the interesting distinction there is that Vala didn't just say, oh, this is all nonsense. He said, this is all nonsense and here's why. And he gave, you know, real intellectual reasons for his argument, pointed to evidence in the text, pointed to historical evidence and plausibility. It's a little bit like what later became scientific method, mm-hmm. which is testing these hypotheses and claims, not just countering authority in itself, which is why in the subtitle I sort of talk about free thinking and about inquiry. And some people say to me, well, aren't they the same sort of thing? And and I think they're different because they're, the emphasis is different. The freedom of thought is very important to humanists. But inquiry includes intellectual inquiry into matters of evidence and justification and our reasons for thinking what we do. So it's not all about questioning authority. It's about um, pursuing intellectual inquiry as well. And yeah, so I think your point is absolutely right. There's a crucial difference there between just sticking it to the man. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about another thing, another piece of this that we've already referenced a couple of times, and that is the notion of, of canon. Um, and and certainly we've been through a very appropriate reconsideration of canon uh, in in this day and age. But it, it's it's tricky for humanists, I, I think. On the one on the one hand, humanism demands an opening up to include. Zora Neale Hurston, who actually became a very prominent humanist, but would have been a person left out of the calculations of centuries and centuries and centuries of very prominent uh, humanists. So there's sort of that, but there is also still this reverence for the canon. Uh, I mean, when the critique of the canon comes up in university context and intellectual context, you hear a lot about dead white European males. That's who's being uh, privileged over everybody else. That's not an incorrect critique. On the other hand, there's there's a dis, there's a need to discern the baby from the bathwater, right? Who are we throwing out, and and who is worth preserving under any circumstances? Yeah, one of the things that uh, that I try to explore in the book is how, despite their limitations, because for sure, you know, you can see many cases of a lot of these humanists having huge inabilities to imagine beyond their own perspective when it comes to um, matters of of race and of gender equality and all sorts of other things. Um, Because that's, you know, those limitations, everybody was suffering from those limitations in their part of the society. Um, What I think is interesting is that a lot of the humanist ways of thinking actually contain the the seeds or the tools that are needed to dismantle those limitations, those assumptions. It's just that not all of them saw it or they saw it in relation to one thing, but not in relation to some other things. Um, so it's a it's a process and it's not a one directional process either. It's not like they've you know eventually came through to some uh, vision of the light that they saw everything. I mean, it's an ongoing, absolutely an ongoing dialogue and um intellectual collaboration among all of us really to to overcome the limitations to see things in the widest possible most inclusive possible terms and to use what's good and what's useful in this tradition without um 
I'm tempted to say deifying <laughs> any of these figures because none of them are are gods. None of them are, are even demigods. You know, they're all very human, very flawed. But a lot of them, the ones that I am most interested in are the ones where there's really powerful potential tools of thinking in their work. Yeah, and I give. I think you you deserve high marks in, in this book for beginning to include concepts like the Chinese concept of Ren, which I was not familiar with, uh, Ubuntu, uh, more of a Southern Africa uh, notion. These these begin to play into the the humanist stream of thought so that we get when we get to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, they're a part of the conversation about something like that. Uh, that's a fundamentally... Yeah, that's, uh, that fascinated me actually how... Um, the drafting of the UN Declaration of Human Rights really deliberately drew on this huge um, wealth of cultural heritage from all over the world and brought in philosophers and writers and thinkers of all kinds to in include that, you know, not to be um, Western-centric um, to the best of their ability. And certainly the idea of Wren um, was specifically mentioned, and it's it's there in the opening phrases of the declaration, the idea of it got sort of translated as, as conscience, but really means something much more like um, humanity and connection among humanity. Um, it's, I would have liked to have done much more on that. I mean, I barely touched on, on those traditions, partly because I don't know enough, um, deeply enough to, to um, have explored them a lot further, but I want, would have loved to have done more, but I was just trying to keep a reasonably coherent um, narrative thread <laughs> to it. So it ends up being, you know, very much about the Western tradition, most of the book. But the there's so much more to be written and has already been written on the interconnections between these very humanistic principles across a huge range of different human cultures. Right. So there's always, you know, humanly possible book two. Um, but right <laughs> yeah. now we're, talk we're talking just to remind people about humanly possible book one, uh, 700 <laughs> Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope by Sarah Bakewell. I'm supposed to go to a break right now, but I'm also, I'm talking to you from Hartford. You wouldn't necessarily know this, but uh, there, because of this presence of certain people here in the Hartford intellectual uh, <laughs> ecosystem, Esperanto is kind of a big deal around here. So, you know, uh, we talked about free thinking. We talked about inquiry. We haven't really talked about hope. Uh, hope is sort of essentially priced right into the word Esperanto. Um, maybe you could just give us a, a little a quick thumbnail description anyway uh, of the founder of the Esperanto movement. Yes, uh, Ludwig Zamenhof, who... Um I hadn't expected to have anything on Esperanto in the book, but I just realized that it was absolutely fascinating and, and belonged right in there. He um, designed this artificial language, Esperanto, um, in the late 19th, early 20th century in Białystok, was where he lived. Um, very uh, divided society, people spoke different languages, um, and he felt had difficulty really relating to one another, partly because of that. And he hoped to create a means of communication through a kind of added second language, very easy to learn, um, which would enable them to, to share that on the same level um, without it belonging to any one group of people. Uh, and Esperanto, literally in Esperanto, the word Esperanto means hopeful, hoping. So he named the whole language after hope. Um, he also tried to... Uh, come up with a religion, as he called it, that would serve a similar 
purpose in bringing people together, which he called um, homoranismo, which is literally humanism in Esperanto. Um, fascinating figure, and I think you know it, that principle of hope, that idea that that there is hope that we could be brought together, is very inspiring. I mean, any anybody can see that it didn't quite work out completely that way in the world, but uh, you know, I think it's very important to have the idea that it it could contribute something. All right, so we we do have to take a break here. I will say that I have sat at dinner tables where everybody but me was speaking Esperanto. <laughs> it's quite an experience. It turns out it, you can't just pick it up just sitting there in between the salad and the main course. It's not quite that simple. No, no. he wanted it to be easy to learn, but not quite over one one dinner party. I guess it might take a bit longer than that. All right, so uh, let's take a little break here. We'll, we'll come back with more Sarah Bickwell uh, and the book Humanly Possible, uh, and we'll be joined by the humanist chaplain at Harvard. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
I knew there would be a Todd Rundgren song about all this. With us, uh, Sarah Bakewell is the author of Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope, among other books. Uh, Greg Epstein is an author and humanist chaplain at Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he is also convener for ethical life at the MIT Office of Religious, Spiritual, and Ethical Life. Uh, So, Greg Epstein, first of all, welcome to the conversation we're having. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. So, you know, one thing that's clear from the beginning of Sarah's book is, although I think in the late 20th and now in the 21st century, people hear humanism, they almost kind of reflexively append secular to it. Uh, But Sarah introduces us to a whole bunch of very explicitly non-secular humanists. I don't know. I was listening to you talk to Krista Tippett uh, uh, on On Being, and and of course, I'm aware of your book, uh, Good Without God. It seems as though in your role, it is a pretty secular concept. Correct me if I'm wrong about that. I mean, it's secular in the popular sense of the word, you know, that there's there's this idea that God is a human creation, that God is um, a literary character. The the Judeo-Christian God being maybe the most influential literary character human beings have ever created. Um, but, you know, is it secular? Is it religious? There are people who have uh, disagreed over that in good faith <laughs> uh, over, you know, more than a century. It, it depends on whether you like a definition of religion that says religion requires uh, gods and mystical phenomena and um, supernatural powers, etc., or if you prefer a more sociological definition of religion that just says it's it's religio from the Latin, that, that which binds us together and gives us meaning and gives us community and gives us a sense that we're connected to both the past and the future. So, Sarah, um, we should say that although you introduced us to a number of very religion-minded humanists, that wouldn't be you, right? Part of your motivation, part of your engagement with the topic of humanism is that, that as I understand it anyway, you are more of the non-religious humanist? I am myself, yeah. And also, a lot of the figures in the book also fall into that category. I mean, the book tries to um, give a, a... a range of of different ways of being a humanist. That's part of what drove me was looking for the connections between them. Um, But I myself have uh, humanist convictions of that type. And I totally agree with Greg about um, the idea of religio as being something that binds us together. I mean, this is a humanist idea par excellence. I mean, there's almost no humanist idea or tradition stronger than that, I think, this idea that we are all interconnected with each other. I mean, earlier on, we mentioned Ubuntu, the idea from um, Southern African, various Southern African cultures and, and languages have an equivalent of that, which um, literally means this binding of people together, this this bundle of life um, was the way that uh, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu defined it. Um, I think that's something that we can all relate to. It's something that certainly is very important to me and is my own feeling about humanism is is really centered on that. I mean, they, they do have some kinship with the Christian notion of agape, I think, too. Uh, but but yes. So, Greg, um, uh, you know, as a chaplain, you have an interesting role, right? I mean, I, I, I'm really old, so <laughs> when I was in school, if I were going to go to the chaplain, it might be about a crisis of faith. Um, that would probably not be the case now. So what do conversations in your job tend to be about and what do they tend to be like? I think in the 21st century, um, a thoughtful person 
is almost constantly forced to be having an existential crisis mm -hmm. um, because we're living in an era of, I think of it as extreme change, um, as a constant change to the point where we don't even um, really have a sense that we can visualize the future at all. Um, while I was writing the book that I've been writing for the past few years, uh, I've been writing a book called Tech Agnostic. Uh, I came across, it was the year that my son was born, it was 2016. I came across a story by uh, E.B. White, um, the great New Yorker writer, wrote Charlotte's Web, etc., um, where he tells the story of um, a little campground that he went to uh, with his father when he was a child. And then he takes his son to that same campground. It's about a century ago. And it's so eerily similar that he can't even tell the difference. He can't even tell whose foot is in whose galosh, whose hand is on whose uh, fishing rod. His, you know, is he his own father or is he himself um, or is he his son? And then that same year, 2016, I read another article um, in The Nation by a writer named Madeline Ostrander, who was writing about a group of women who weren't sure that they were going to feel comfortable having children, although they wanted to, uh, because they were just too afraid of the effects of climate change. And so we've gone from this feeling of not being able to tell the difference at times between the past and the present to not feeling confident that the future is going to even be worthwhile. Mm. And I talk to people about that all the time, regardless of their background, their belief, et cetera. It's, it's a lot to unpack. Right. You can always hand, hand them a copy of Sarah's previous book at the Existentialist Cafe, Freedom Being yeah. and Apricot Cocktails. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, take two of these and call me in the morning. Um, but so, Sarah, you know, there's a, I think it might be Tumblr's. There's one of Stoppard's plays where the narrator or protagonist says something about the, there must have been a discernible moment when when the tilt, and this tilt happened first in Europe and uh, is, is happening now in America, was away from from uh, from belief in religion, more towards belief uh, in, in in other things, or just dis disbelief in religion. I I think he said there must have been a point where the nose have it, uh, and and that's happened. It's happening here in the U.S. But the other thing that's happening, and I'd love to for both of you to talk about this, is that if we see the humanities as a possible replacement or a thing that undergirded religion the whole time. There's a tilt away from that too. I got, I just by chance got an email from a, a guy I know at Wesleyan who teaches classics there, and he says, "Yeah, I mean here, and he knows that I occasionally teach at Yale." He said, "We get some of the best and brightest. You'll pardon the expression." He says, "But elsewhere, it's all business ed and computer tech and hospitality management. Uh, the reasons aren't that hard to find, but the consequences are harder to figure out." I mean, Sarah, there's a way in which maybe humanism is having a moment, but maybe humanities aren't. Well, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I mean, there's a sense of perma crisis. I think was voted the word of the year, wasn't it? In a couple of years ago, um, we're in a sort of perma crisis of worrying about so much at the moment, and one of them is this sense that there's a decline of the humanities and the whole ideal of the humanities, the idea of studying the human studies not with any particular purpose or acquiring any particular skill set in mind, but just the old idea of becoming a better person or becoming a more well-equipped person in the world. Um, I mean, 
people have been worrying about that for a long time, though. I mean, I've got books on my shelf called things like The Crisis of the Humanities, which go back to the early half of the 20th century. People did worry about it a lot, actually, in the in the 30s, because then as now, the fear that something was being lost was also allied with the fear of what was coming over the horizon politically and economically and in all sorts of other ways, whether there was, you know, war um, in the offing, which there was. And so there's a kind of general anxiety as well as, you know, hard, cold facts to make us concerned. I don't have any answers in either case. I don't I don't know whether our different anxieties are necessarily as deeply related as we might think. The idea that we might be losing something and turning away from the humanities and the idea of a general sense of impending doom. <laughs> you know, what is the relationship? I don't have the answer, but I think it's it's. Um, it's almost overwhelming at the moment, isn't it, trying to explore these questions? Right. And Greg, you do have a foot on two college campuses. However, these two college campuses are, well, one of them is absolutely the place where you could reasonably expect someone to have read Montaigne before coming to, <laughs> to you. I don't know about MIT, maybe it's a little bit different there. But um, could you say a little bit about that? Just the role of the humanities, the, the parts of the humanities that are not connected to religion, but do specifically address, to steal a Bakewell title, how to live. Uh, how to live. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be alive on this earth? What does it mean to be biologically finite? Those seem to be the kinds of things that Cicero wanted us to think about uh, and everybody uh, that she writes about afterwards. What's happening on college campuses with that? Well, I think on the one hand, the humanities are under attack on most college campuses. I'm actually probably less interested there in what's happening on these two campuses that I happen to work on because um, Harvard and MIT and places like that are sort of exceptions that they have. They have this enormous budgets um, that where they can retain more, at least of a critical mass. Uh, I don't keep track of what the exact budget of the, you know, the English or the history department is at at Harvard, but, you know, it's it's not insubstantial. But the you know, the fact is that in more and more places around the country, around the world, um, people are de-emphasizing these pursuits with the idea that we're just sort of going to, to um, you know, to, to AIify everything to, uh, as, as Douglas Rushkoff says, we're going to auto-tune humanity. So it's <laughs> no big deal. Um, but in fact, in an age where, uh, you know, I think of technology as the most powerful religion of today. Um, and, ha- you know, as as having far eclipsed at this point, the influence that religion has on most people's lives, um, we're going to need the humanities even more desperately than we have before. We, we need to really spend time and energy thinking about what makes us human, because otherwise uh, we're sort of turning over. We're giving the keys to that question over to uh, AI companies and social media companies and, and uh, an industry run amok. Right. If tech is our new religion and Zuckerberg and Musk are our popes, uh, we're in a lot of trouble. We need humanities yeah. big time. Yeah, they're certainly prophets. So they are false prophets. They are false prophets. So uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to say farewell and thank you so much to Sarah Bakewell. Her book, Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope, uh, was what kind of get us got us going on this whole topic for today. Sarah, thanks for joining us. When book two comes out uh, and it has like Jedis and things <laughs> like that in it, obviously come right back here and we'll do another show. But thanks for being with us today. Thank thank you very much indeed. Okay. Uh, We'll take a little break and Greg and I will come back. We'll talk a little bit more about humanities and tech. It is the people's will and bring back the power of the people. 
Never miss the Colin McEnroe Show by subscribing to or following our podcast on any app. It is free. The senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson, whose boss is Katie Tolarski, whose boss is Mark Contreras, who reports to the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. We don't know why. Back to the show. Gently as the morning breaks, we'll hear the sound that silence makes, even though there's thunder in the air. Somewhere. All right, we are back. The technical producer of today's show has got Pastor uh, Lily Tyson. Our senior producer is the producer of this particular episode. She's been in there wrestling with computer problems and all kinds of stuff, but has done an amazing job of just laying out this subject. Uh, Still with me is Greg Epstein, uh, author uh, and humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT, where he's uh, also convener for Ethical Life at the MIT Office of Religious, Spiritual, and Ethical Life. So, Greg... Yeah, I think we need to talk more about tech. Uh, it, it does sort of rule the conversation in so many different ways. And there's a, a new wave of anxiety about AI. Uh, and if AI is going to become more human and, and represent a kind of invasion of our space, uh, we therefore probably have to decide what it actually does mean to be human. But I just sort of wonder if you could just say a little bit more in terms of what you wind up talking about in, in the forums you occupy when you're talking about the latest wave of, let's say, tech anxiety. Yeah. Um, thanks, Colin. And it's a great conversation. I talk all the time to students who um, are really just not sure what kind of life they want to live, what kind of life they're supposed to live, um, why they're doing all the things that they're doing in the first place. They're working extraordinarily hard. And um it, it feels to a lot of them like the narrative for why they're bothering to do so is falling apart. Um, they know that they're capable of achieving great things, but they're increasingly sort of learning that it's through just sort of great fortune, uh, sometimes almost dumb luck that they were born in a position where they can achieve these great things. And um, they're starting to worry, like, am I doing this at the expense of everybody else? Um, or if I'm trying to do something good, like, am I going to be able to have any kind of effectuality on that? Or, or is the world just going to hell in a handbasket anyway? Um, why bother? Um, what, what feels right? What feels good? And, you know, I, I don't have all the answers for that, but, um, I want to encourage them to really pursue those questions and to, to feel like, no, it's not too painful to really pause and reflect on this stuff. In fact, um, it will be too painful if you force yourself not to reflect on it. If you, if you, if you, you know, try to avert your eyes and avert uh, your, your, your path towards that pain. Um, because humanism to me, the, really the operative word is the human in the sense of that word of being only human. We're vulnerable. 
we're mortal, we're incomplete, we, we, we are not all powerful. And that is so important that that to me is just as important, if not even much more so than the the no God piece of humanism or the, you know, the determining the, the, the exact truth part of humanism. It would seem to me also that identifying currents and trends in our daily life that are effectively anti-humanistic is worth doing and seeing if you can contravene them somehow. When I was thinking about you and talking to you, I wound up thinking about this story, short story I read in The New Yorker. It's about a young woman who's a veterinarian and she's working in, in a kind of a group practice that's owned by some outside company. And, and her supervisor at one point says, we have a protocol here, as you know, once a team member reaches a dozen three-star or below reviews within a 12-month period, <laughs> it triggers some kind of process of review that's very uncomfortable and bad. And, you know, here, here's this outside world. I mean, these three-star reviews are coming up on God knows whatever site, and they're reviews that people make after they've had the interpersonal, you know, face-to-face -face interaction with the veterinarian, they decide they don't like what they were told about their parrot. And, and you know, when you think about how much of life has become like that, of people yeah. rating one another <laughs> on, yeah. on sites, I mean, that would alarm, it does alarm me, and it seems fundamentally anti-humanistic. Yeah, we're being prodded towards... Um towards a, a sort of mean, uh, a lowest common denominator where where in order to be able to sell us more stuff, and this is again, this is referring to uh, an intellectual hero of mine, Douglas Rushkoff, you know, in, in order to, uh, you know, prod us to buy more stuff, um, the AI, which is really just a mathematical equation, essentially, for, you know, what people have done in the past, um, prods us, prompts us using a computer um, that beat the world champion in the the game go right mm -hmm. that google took that ai and put it towards things like youtube algorithms um and uh it prods us towards making sort of these same milk toast decisions um so that it knows when we want to buy something and it gets us to buy it um you know and and in addition um there's the sense that that everything has to speed up right um, you know, noticing with with my students, my wife, myself, my friends, um, how we're all in this tech era, just sort of chasing speed all the time. Like we've got to we've got to get the the work product back to our boss or our coworker as soon as possible, even though everything about it is changing, even though there's nuance. We've got to crunch that nuance down to nothing and just produce, produce, produce because everybody else can in the age of AI. So we now need to, too. And there's really no benefit to humanity to to living that way other than um, enormous, enormous profits for the big companies that facilitate that work. Yeah, if you're going to cite Rushkoff, who I admire, I'll cite another intellectual hero, Neil Postman. Um, sure. You know, and, and Postman's work seems so prophetic, the idea that we would mm -hmm. be amusing ourselves to death. Um, yep. I, I had a conversation with my students this spring uh, about TikTok, and they described things that had happened to them, during, particularly during the pandemic, where they realized they'd been on TikTok for 10 hours in a day. Um, and 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 that's the other part. If we're handing over the car keys to yeah. tech companies, one of the reasons we're doing it is because they sort of sugarcoat it, right? They make it a, a lozenge that's pretty easy to swallow. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's this there's this phrase, uh, the old idea that you can accomplish a great deal if you don't care who gets the credit. <laughs> and I think about that a lot these days when I think about the idea of a god. 
Okay, because, you know, there's there's been a lot of uh, thought given to the idea of the Old Testament God as this sort of obsequious figure who's always asking you, worship me, worship me, worship me. All the prayers um, in the Judeo-Christian tradition are just sort of like, please, please, please. You're great. You're great. You're great. Can I have this? You're great. You're great. You're great. Right. (laughs) Um, The tech gods don't ask for credit. They don't even want you to believe that they exist. Um, you're not expected to think of tech as a religion. You're not expected to think of this idea of technology overwhelming our lives as sort of godlike, even though it is literally looking down on us from space and seeing our every move, right? Um, but, you know, that's the idea is, is because it's not asking for credit from us, um, it really is dominating our lives, um, because we think that it's, you know, that when we're, we're responding to tech's agenda, that we're just responding to our own agenda and we're really just doing things that, because, that are fun. But is it really fun to spend all day looking at this little stained glass window, um, genuflecting to it that we carry around in our pockets and, and on average open 300 times a day? That, that's more than <laughs> the five times a day prayer of Islam for sure. Yes, uh, I we on Monday we did a show about um, people making this transition from th- from Twitter to Threads, uh, and I was trying to point out that Threads is owned by Meta. We, we know some of the things because of the the leak of documents and stuff like that by by whistleblowers. Uh, it, yep. It's you know Baudelaire said that the greatest trick of the devil was persuading the world he doesn't exist. Uh, there's a way in which people rushing over to Meta they've forgotten. I mean, as you're saying, these are gods who don't ask you to worship them. Uh, yep. They they just keep you busy. Uh, well, this is fascinating stuff. I cannot re- wait to read the book that you are writing right now. I want to thank you for your time today, though. It's been a wonderful conversation. My pleasure. Greg Epstein is author and a humanist chaplain at Harvard and at MIT, where he's also convener of Ethical Life at the MIT Office of Religious, Spiritual, and Ethical Life. We should have one here at Connecticut Public, I'm sure. I think there's one going on in the first floor remodeling. We're going to put one of those in. So uh, thanks for listening today, and we will be back tomorrow with the notes. Shining in.